Well, hey, my name is Jason, and I'm the pastor here at Hope City Church, and wherever you're watching this, however you're a part of this, we're just glad we get to be together as we are in the second part, week two, of a series called The Goat, a series called The Goat, and if you're not sure what The Goat is, you obviously have never heard of LL Cool J, because uh, GOAT stands for the greatest of all time, and this is a series about Jesus, because Jesus is the GOAT. And, uh, and so we are taking 12 weeks to talk about the greatest person to ever live, Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, Jesus is the most important, controversial, polarizing, history-changing person to ever live. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited because as we go through these 12 weeks together of this series, it's going to lead us right to Easter and on Easter weekend, we will get to celebrate Jesus doing what goats do and uh, just, just being amazing, resurrecting. So we're going to get to celebrate uh, that together, all right? Now, last week, we read that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, that means that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, And so all of us at some point have wondered, we've all questioned, what's God like? What does God look like? What does God act like? What is God like? And we don't know the answers to those questions uh, just through our imagination or what somebody says. We know and we can know uh, some of the ways and some of the things that God is like by looking at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then you got to look at Jesus. And we get to know, we are lucky enough and blessed enough to get to know what Jesus is like because there were four guys, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who decided to make sure that for the rest of history, uh, people could know who Jesus was and what Jesus was like and uh, what God is like. And so uh, John is one of those guys and so we are reading his words, reading his stories about Jesus, and that today we are going to read uh, chapter two. We're going to be in chapter two of this book of John, and uh, we're going to read two different stories, two different stories in uh, John chapter two to see two very distinct qualities uh, about about God, about Jesus and his life. But before we read those stories, what I want to do is read you one uh, verse. It'll be on your, on your sermon guide, but just one verse back in chapter one. We looked at chapter one last week, but I want to just go back and look at one verse. It's verse, uh, it's verse 14. And normally, I read from the New Living Translation uh, if you're not familiar with Bible translations, don't lose any sleep over it. But normally we read from the New Living, like NLT, uh, and I love the NLT. Uh, but to, to, today what I want to do is I want to read from the NIV, which stands for New International Version, this one verse uh, from John chapter 1, verse 14, and this is what it says. It says that the Word, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We said that last week, that Jesus is God and decided to leave all of his godness and come to earth. We said it's like it would be like a billionaire giving away all his stuff so that they could come and sleep on your couch, all right? That's what Jesus did, and it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And it's those words at the end that we're going to to focus on today, grace and truth. Everybody say grace. Grace. Everybody say truth. Truth. Grace and truth. That is what we're going to be be looking at. Now, the, the NLT, the New Living Translation, says full of unfailing love and faithfulness, which is true. Those are beautiful things. But the phrase grace and truth, I think, works a little better because all of us are able to associate with the words grace and truth. All of us can think of times in our life, examples in our life where we received grace. Maybe a cop let you out of a speeding ticket. That's never happened to me, but it happens to people is what I hear uh, maybe a cop let you out of a ticket. Uh, maybe a judge didn't put you in jail. Uh, maybe a parent gave you a second chance. Uh, whatever it is, all of us could associate at a time or think of a time when we received grace. But we could also think of a time when we had to tell the truth. Or maybe we found out the truth. And so we can, we can relate. We can associate with this idea of grace and, and truth. And John tells us that Jesus left being God. He he came to earth, and when he showed up, he was full of both grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He didn't flip a coin like, should it be grace, should it be truth? It wasn't 50-50. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. So the reason we have trouble comprehending that is because we've never met anybody like that. A sinful person can't do that. Jesus is the only one who's ever been able to be full of 100% grace and 100%, 100% truth. And why does that matter? You're like, thank you for explaining that, but why does that matter? Well, it matters a lot, and we're going to, to kind of figure out why as we read through these stories in John chapter 2. So the first story is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to read this to you, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, all right? This is what it says. It says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Evidently, she had her mind made up. Verse 6 verse six says, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. These are pretty large. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Verse 9. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out 
the cheap stuff, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed. Everybody say believed. believed. We said last week, 99 times that word's going to show up in these 21 chapters. It's why John wrote the book, Believe in Jesus. The disciples saw this and they believed in him. And after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So this is the first recorded miracle that Jesus ever performed. Let that sink in for just a second. The first miraculous act that Jesus did was to provide alcohol at a party. And some of you are like, yes, I, I knew I was being like Jesus. I, I knew it. This is great. I, I wish they'd have told me this sooner. I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure Jesus did it to just annoy religious people for the rest of time, you know? Um, just to upset my grandfather, I think, is why he did this miracle. Who else but Jesus could use Jewish ceremonial washing jars to turn water to, water to wine? Um, this, is, this is so Jesus, right? But before you get too excited, listen, this, this story um, has absolutely nothing to do with alcohol. Jesus wasn't making a point or endor- endorsing any stance. Uh, and it's really silly, and people do it, but it's really silly for people to use this story to establish anything uh, one way or the other. It's silly for people who are uh, against any form of alcohol to say, well, Jesus really didn't turn water to wine. It wasn't really wine. It was like, it was grape juice. And that's not, you know, that's silly. But it's also silly for people who are not opposed to alcohol to say, hey, well, I mean, Jesus turned water to wine, so I'm going to go get drunk, right? There's a country song, uh, I heard Jesus, he drank wine, I think he'd be a friend of mine. Like, that's not a, a great stance either. either. That's not what this story is about. This story is about the grace and the power of God. Now, if you've ever planned a wedding you know that um, whoever is planning this wedding feels a a, a ton of pressure. I mean, you just feel a lot of pressure. You want to get it right. You need a great hashtag. You need, you know, a great venue, a great dress, a great party. Imagine how you would feel if you got to the reception and found out that you ran out of food or, or drinks, right? For a wedding celebration in the Bible, this this pressure was even more intense. This is not like we ran out of chicken fingers, right? In the Bible, there wasn't a lot going on. So a wedding ceremony and celebration was was like the event of of the city, of of the town. And so if it went wrong, it was a humiliating, embarrassing stain uh, on your your family. It It would be humiliating. And so... Uh, what Jesus does here is no, it's no small thing, obviously. And uh, th- this is not the point of the story, but as I was just reading through this, there were, there were a couple of things that jumped, jumped out at me that, I, that reminded me, again, of, of some of the things that I love about Jesus. And, and like I say, it's not the point, but I think it's worth, I think it's worth mentioning. Just, let me just give you three takeaways real quick. I love that Jesus attends parties. I love that about Jesus. No one ever said it, but I always got the idea that Jesus was either too important or too spiritual or too busy to do anything like that. I didn't, growing up, I didn't meet a lot of people who loved Jesus who threw good parties. If you, if the Christian parties were the lame parties. Anybody else? Like, 
It was like, hey, we're having a party, but it was always Bible study, and it never, it was never, uh, never worked out. But the more you begin to read the stories of Jesus, you find out that he's not like, he's not like that. That Jesus spent a lot of time at dinner parties. He spent a lot of time on boats at the lake. He, he loved to do that. He, he was always living on purpose, but that doesn't mean he was too spiritual to be likable. He wasn't so spiritual that he didn't know how to have a, a good time. Jesus wanted to be where the people were. And if that's where the people were, then that's where he was going to be. And, and so Jesus attends parties, and I love that Jesus attends parties. I don't know if you knew that about Jesus, but he attended parties. I love that Jesus is willing to, to save someone from shame and embarrassment. That's another thing I love about this story. He's willing to do the same thing for me and you. I don't mean that, that my decisions won't embarrass me sometimes, because I, I've made a lot of embarrassing decisions before in my life. But in this story, in this instance, Jesus performed a miracle that saved a man and his family from shame and embarrassment. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to do that. Now, to be clear, sometimes God will use embarrassment to help me realize um, how dumb I was and that I need to come to my senses. He'll do that too. But more times than not, he, he bails me out when he doesn't have to when I don't deserve it, when I get myself in the messes. Anybody ever had Jesus bail you out before? Anybody? You just, yeah, he does that. And I love that he does that. He didn't have to do this. This was not something, you know, on the eternal register that he had to do, but he, he did it. And I love that, that Jesus is willing to bail me out and save me from shame and embarrassment sometimes. But, but one more thing that I love about this story is I love that Jesus is willing to do something because he's asked to do it. Did you notice that, that Jesus, what Jesus said when, when his mom, Mary, asked him to solve the problem? He said, that's not my problem. I, I didn't, like, I, in other words, Jesus was saying, I did not come from heaven. I did not stop being God to be human so that I could be a wedding planner, is what he was saying to his mom. That's, that's, like, that's a translation of what he's saying to his mom, right? There are bigger things at play here. I did not come from heaven to plan wedding receptions. Um, but he did it. He did it. Why did he do it? Because his mom asked him to. And it's a reminder to me that, that the Bible is clear that there are some things that will only happen in our life if we ask for them. Jesus even said, pray, ask. And so, and so we see here just some amazing qualities about, about Jesus. Like, just stop for a moment and consider how this story makes you feel about Jesus. He's the kind of guy who attends parties. He's the kind of guy who bails us out. He's the kind of guy who does things that we ask of him. He sounds amazing. Who doesn't want to be friends with this guy? Who wouldn't want to marry this guy? Who would, like, this is the kind of guy that you would want to be in relationship with. This is amazing. Now, we're going to come back to this story in a moment, but I want to go ahead and read the second story, and then we're going to put these stories together so that we can see what we can learn about God today. So that was the first story. The second story starts in the very next verse, verse 13. It's just four, uh, four verses, 13 through 17. Well, maybe that's five verses. Anyway, um, verse 13, here's what it says. Very next story, okay? It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem 
In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also, he also saw dealers at the table exchanging foreign money. 15, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures. So this was something that was prophesied thousands of years earlier about who the Messiah would be. This would be a characteristic of the Messiah. They remembered passion for God's house will consume me. This story is a little bit different <laughs> than the first story, right? This is, this is a dramatically different story. Um, Jesus doesn't throw a party. He shuts the party down. He, he, uh, he's upset. He's angry. And he's not upset, just so you know, that because people are selling things. Uh, this it was actually necessary for people to buy sacrifices. I don't want to go into a rabbit trail here, but, but people were traveling long distances. According to the Old Testament, they had to make these sacrifices. You didn't want to have to be responsible for all the kids and all the you know, animal sacrifices so you could get there, you could buy one. So the fact that they were selling these animals was not necessarily uh, a problem, but, but Jesus was upset. He was so upset that verse 17 says he went and he, keyword, made a whip. Now, I've never made a whip, okay? <laughs> I've never made a whip. But I would imagine it takes a little bit of time to make a whip, right? I would imagine that it, it takes a little bit of time. So let's just imagine for a moment. We don't know exactly how it happened, but let's just imagine for a moment. Jesus comes in. He sees the temple. He's upset about it. He leaves the temple. He goes out, and wherever you buy whip supplies, he gets the whip supplies. He goes, and he sits on a rock somewhere, and I don't know how long it takes. Let's say two, three, four, five, eight hours. I don't know. And he doesn't say, let there be a whip. The Bible says he made a whip, so he is just stewing. <laughs> he is sitting there braiding a whip, thinking about the people who sell the doves and who are exchanging the money. Like, he, he didn't need a whip. He was Jesus. He made a whip. He made a whip. Now, when I was growing up, uh, there were spankings, and then there was when you went and picked out what you got spanked with. Anybody relate to that right there? Some of y'all have no idea, but that's, we got another conversation for another time. But, but it was one thing to be spanked. It was another thing to pick out the weapon, and that's kind of like... Jesus is so upset that he's like, I'm going to let you pick out the weapon in a sense. And he makes this whip. And then he, he takes the whip into the temple and literally whips some tail. He, he, he clears out the temple. Now, I think it's important that, that you know why, why Jesus got so upset. He was not angry because a sinner was sinning. He was not angry because a baby was crying in the service. He was not upset because a kid was on their iPad, you know, while mom and dad were sacrificing. He was not upset because people were, um, 
you know, not uh, doing all the right things. He was, he was upset because religious people were taking advantage of people. And this is, a, this is a pattern all throughout Jesus's life and all throughout his ministry. Jesus was never upset at sinners for sinning, never. You need to know that. Jesus was never upset for sinners who were sinning. He was always upset with religious people using religion to take advantage of people. Jesus didn't make a whip for the woman caught in adultery. He didn't make a whip for the woman who had been married five times and was living with guy six. He didn't make a whip for Zacchaeus. He didn't make a whip for Mary the prostitute. Jesus did not stew over sinners sinning. He was angry because people were using worship as a disguise to get what they really wanted, which was money. And so he was angry, and it was a righteous anger, and it's not anger like we get angry because somebody cuts us off in traffic. It's anger like, because I love my wife, if somebody was trying to hurt her, it would make me angry type, a defense type of anger uh, and Jesus, even on a whole nother level, because we know he never sinned, this wasn't like an anger, punch a wall, sinful type of anger. This was a righteous anger that, that says, I love these people so much, I can't watch them be taken advantage of. Right? So this is what's happening. Jesus sees this happening. He, he makes a whip, and then he goes and he whips people. Now, remember what we said at the beginning, that Jesus shows us what God is like. Right? That's what, we're, that's what we're doing over these weeks together. We are finding out what God is like based on what Jesus did. And so we know that, that Jesus shows us what God is like. So if we put these two stories together, we see two distinct characteristics of God. He makes wine and whips. <laughs> Jesus makes wine and whips. Now here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I love these two stories I love that they're back to back. And I love it. I love it because as soon as we think we can fit God into a box, he shakes it up on us. Right? Look at it like this. In the first story, Jesus is likable. He's fun and helpful. And if you only read John 2, 1 through 12, Jesus appears to be the kind of guy who will, you know, go to keg parties with you and hang out with you and provide the alcohol and be the DD. And like, that's, that's what you think of when you read John 2, 1 through 12. And if that's all you read, that would be all that you would think that he is. And the second story Jesus is angry and violent and kicks people out of the church. And if you only read John 2, 13 through 17, Jesus appears to be a tyrant who makes whips and turns over tables and beats people up. The truth is, both things are true. He is fun and he has standards. He bails us out and sometimes he kicks us out. He does what we asks, ask, and other times he refuses to budge. He is full of grace and truth. You see that? So in my experience, people are typically more comfortable with one version or the other, right? Depending on how you were raised or your life experiences, you typically think of Jesus as a tyrant, 
someone who's angry, someone who's waiting to catch you, someone who sets traps trying to get you to step into them, someone who punishes you, someone who can't wait to send you to hell. Like if you don't mess up, maybe you'll get into heaven, but it's going to be really hard and he's going to make sure it's hard. He's a tyrant. He's angry. Or you think of Jesus as somebody who's cool with whatever. Jesus is my homeboy. We're cool. Me and Jesus are fine. And based on your view of God, you either live in fear, filled with guilt, you're desperately trying not to upset God, or you're taking advantage of grace and you live with very little reverence or fear of God. And so I would be curious if you and I were able to go to coffee, I would be curious as we would, if we were to unpack this a little bit, I would be very curious to know which version of God you relate to. Because what you think about God determines uh, how you follow God, how, you, how your relationship with God, how you worship God. And, and, and most of us uh, typically lean into one side or the other. And what I've learned with my life is usually what I think God will do or, or how I think God will treat me, he usually does the opposite. When I, expect, when I expect God to drop the hammer, he usually is so gracious, giving me undeserved chances. And when I'm so convinced that God is going to get even with me, he... He lets me off the hook in a sense. And in those times in my life where I'm like, ah, oh, he don't care, I find out that he really cares. He, he really does care. Chuck Swindoll, um, who's one of my favorite authors and preachers, and he tells a story uh, that I think is the perfect way for us to, to, to close this out. He tells a story about uh, the day that he got his permit, and obviously, like everybody, he was looking forward to this day, and um, on the day that he got his permit, his dad tossed him the keys to his pride and joy Cadillac. This was his dad's favorite car, and no one was ever allowed to drive it, touch it, get in it, whatever, and so Chuck Swindoll, first day with a permit, dad says, hey, you can, you can take it. And uh, he tells him, you can have the car for two hours. Just go do whatever you want. You can drive it all on your own. You can have it for two hours. And so Swindoll tells the story. He says, he got in the car with a full tank of gas, and he was thinking about picking up his friends or taking it out on the highway, seeing how fast he could drive it. But as he got out on the road, he, he didn't give in to the temptation to drive over the speed limit. As a matter of fact, he... Um, he drove under the speed limit, slower than he needed to go for, for about 15 minutes. And then he turned around and he drove back home and he tossed his dad the keys and uh, he said, thanks, but no thanks. He loved his dad so much and he knew how much his dad loved that car. And Swindoll says that the thought of, of doing anything to mess up the Cadillac overrode any thoughts of having fun with the car. And so he walked inside and, and, and gave him the keys. 
And that is an example of the power of grace. That's the, that's the power of grace. That you are free to do whatever you want. When it comes to your relationship with God, he hands you the keys and you can drive as fast as you want and you can live as crazy as you want and you can wreck the car if you want to. You will still be his son. You will still be his daughter. You are not going to get kicked out of the family because you wrecked the car. But the power of truth is knowing that God gave you his best in Jesus. Knowing how much he loves his son, Jesus, and that he sent his best for you. And so you don't want to play fast and loose with God's most prized possession. And the more you get to know Jesus, the more you fall in love with him, and you want to honor him. It's grace and it's truth. And again, for me, it is usually me forgetting one characteristic of the, or the other in my relationship with God. When I start believing that Jesus is angry with me, I for, forget or I have forgotten his graceful, uh, playful side. And when I'm struggling for motivation to live my best God-honoring life, I have forgotten his truthful side. And I love that I serve a God who makes wine and he makes whips because I am learning that I need both of them. And he provides both of them for me. Let's pray.